It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. Chris Dreesen of Phoebe Moon Designs is a quilter who travels by RV. She specializes in printable quilt patterns, tutorials, and quilt mysteries. Chris has had the honor of designing for Connecting Threads, Northcott, and Banyan Batiks. She also has the privilege of her patterns being commercially distributed through Brewer Sewing and Supply. I don't know how she does it all, but there's no denying that Chris is a knowledgeable and experienced quilter. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on A Quilter's Life. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh-huh. Now, we met on Clubhouse. I don't know if other people know about that, but it was fun to meet you on there. Uh-huh. Let's start with where were you born and raised? Uh, I actually live very close to where I was born and raised, despite the fact I've traveled a bit. I was born in Schenectady, New York, and I still live relatively close. I live within 10, maybe 20 miles from where I was born. Oh, cool. Schenectady was a big immigrant city back in the 1920s. General Electric owned the city. Sometimes it's even called the Electric City. It's quite a place to be from. Neat. Share with me a special childhood memory in your growing up years. GE has a sign that they light up. And there's a road now that goes past it. The road is elevated and it's Interstate 890. And you go right past the GE sign. And every year they make it red and green. So every year we make it a point to go past the GE sign. Some people go to the holiday lights festivals. We go to GE and drive by the sign. But that's my big event. How fun. What a special memory to keep a tradition going to. Yeah. And you said you live near where you were born and raised, but you said you traveled. Where did you travel to? I went to college in Hartwick, Oneonta at Hartwick College in Oneonta, New York. And that was actually where I saw my first quilt show. And I had never really seen a quilt show before. I'd never thought about quilts as anything other than blankets. And that was my first exposure to the fact that they actually could be art. And it changed my mindset a little bit. Anyway, at the time I was there for, I think I was liberal arts or whatever, but I changed my major to sociology and I started studying women's lives and how textiles impacted their life. And that took me down the path of antique quilts, which took me into quilting. This goes over a period of years. So fast forwarding a little bit, almost 30 years actually, my husband and I, we had a business out of the house where I bought and sold antique quilts. 
And I did quilt restoration. I did some appraising. This was before AQS got involved with appraising. Doing vending at shows was an awful lot of work. So we came up with the idea of a traveling quilt bus. And we saw a school bus on the side of the road. And we said to ourselves, there it is. There's our quilt bus. So we bought the school bus. My husband stripped it out and we turned the inside into a quilt shop. And so for the next, boy, almost 10 years, we traveled wherever we were invited on the quilt bus. He would sell from inside the bus and I would go inside and teach or give talks about the antique quilts and women's lives and so on and so forth. It was an interesting experience. We went as far west as Colorado and as far south as Texas. Never did make it to the, we were invited by Simply Quilts, but we never made it out that far. Oh, how exciting. I saw you said something about RV, but I never thought of a school bus. We travel by RV now, but I don't really teach from it. If I know that I've been invited somewhere to give a talk, I will bring the suitcase that goes with that particular talk. But for the most part, that part of the quilt bus is behind us. Yeah. Must have been an exciting time, though. It was. We ended up opening a brick and mortar store in 2005. And this was really way before the Internet. The Internet was just starting to take off. So we did a lot of sales online. You know, our tagline was the quilt store that comes to your door. And that worked for both the quilt bus and the quilt store. In fact, that's where the patterns came from is because when I was on the road, I had created a bunch of classes that were mostly experimental. I had a class called No Whining. And in the No Whining class, we played. We played with fabric. We played with color. We made blocks and we cut them up. We did the cut up nine patch long before the technique had a name. We did dimensional quilting. We did quilts with strips. It was a very interesting class, but people would always ask me for a handout. And of course, you don't have a handout for an experimental class. So eventually I started writing them up. And that was the very, very beginning of my pattern business was those technique sheets. Neat. Now, you mentioned dimensional quilting. I don't know if I'm familiar with that term. Can you explain that to me? I'd almost have to show you. It is quilts that have a 3D element. If you go to my website, I think if you go to the Scrap Dash blog right now, there is a block that has a 3D element to it. It's where one piece of fabric sticks up and is folded back down in the seam. Think of a prairie point. Okay. That's a 3D element. Okay. Thank you. Because of the crazy way I got my start, we actually had three websites. We had Quilt Bus, which, you know, was the sales site. We had Phoebe Moon, which was the pattern site, and Scrap Dash, which was the blog site. So a lot of times people get confused. You don't usually change names like that. But Phoebe Moon still exists, Scrap Dash still exists, and we just keep going. Yeah. You've been so busy for so long with your quilting. Were there any other crafts or hobbies that you've had? 
When I was a young mother, I did ceramics, but mostly everything I've ever done has always been involving cloth or textiles. I sewed for my kids. I sewed for myself. I think it was my mother and grandmother that taught me to sew, but nobody taught me to quilt, really. I just picked it up from classes from a nearby quilt shop and so on. Well, I guess the antique quilts helped me because I would take them apart and look at how they were constructed. I think a lot of people in our age group, the you know, this late 60s, early 70s, they all started sewing as children. We all come from a garment background. Mm-hmm. Well, that was my next question on who introduced you to quilting, but I think you answered that. Yeah, I don't really remember. Mm-hmm. I do remember my first quote, which was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely terrible. I had no idea what I was doing, but I kept persevering, and eventually I made something halfway decent. Oh, neat. Do you still have that first quilt? No, I gave it as a wedding gift, believe it or not. <laughs> and I'm afraid to ask the woman if she still got it. <laughs> She's still my friend, though, so it must not have been too bad. <laughs> Over the years, have you made a quilt that seems to be your favorite quilt, or have you seen another quilt? I have a couple of quilts that I have loved through the years. Again, going back to quilt bus time, and the beginning of the internet, we used to do, or I used to do, a mystery every New Year's Day and every Super Sunday. I started doing mysteries really early on and continue to do them, even though I'm now technically retired, because they're just so much fun. People are so enthusiastic, and I just love getting the pictures and the comments, and I don't know, the whole thing. It makes me feel like I'm connected and part of a bigger community. But where I'm going with this is that one of my favorite quilts is one I did as a mystery. And instead of hourly clues, which you do on the one-day mysteries, I did weekly clues. And a quilt lasted the whole summer. I had a clue a week. And at the end, you had a king-size quilt. And the quilt was called Summer Storm. And it's really lovely. I keep it on my bed all the time. I have yet to see one of the quilts made from that mystery that's ugly. I think everybody did a spectacular job. So that's my favorite quilt is Summer Storm. Wow. What colorway did you make yours in? It was mostly batiks, but I mixed it up a little bit. When you're working on your quilts, do you have a tool that you're just so happy that you have? Rotary cutter. You know, back when I first got started, they didn't have rotary cutters. They didn't have rulers. And then when the rotary cutter finally came out, the idea of a ruler didn't exist. So you had to use like a yardstick or something. And I ended up going to the True Value, which was close to my house, and having them cut strips of plexiglass that I could use for rulers. So I still tell people to do that. If they need a specific ruler, they're going to make a certain size. And they need that ruler over and over again. And it's an odd shape, like four and three quarters. When you're doing a square and a square, sometimes you do a four and three quarter center for a six and a half inch block. There's no ruler that does four and three quarters. So you go to True Value and you get them to cut you a four and three quarter piece of plexiglass. And there's your ruler. That's my quilting tip of the day. (laughs) With everything you've done. 
Are you surprised you didn't try to sell some of those rulers? No, it never even occurred to me. Never even occurred to me. The only thing I'm really mad at myself for doing is not getting on YouTube when I had the chance. I knew it was going to explode the way it did. And some of my old, old videos are still there. They're 12 and 13 years old now. But of course, they're so good because they're technique videos. But I just dropped the ball and never kept going with it. It's a real commitment. It is. There's so many parts of the quilting process. Is there one that you just really like better than the others, or do you like each step? I think I like each step as I'm in it. There's nothing really that I dread. I even like binding. So I always enjoy from beginning to end the whole thing. Yeah. Share with me your worst quilting experience. Oh, that would be one of the mysteries. I decided I would do a mystery that had a paper pieced element. In my head, the New Year's Eve mysteries are always a little bit more technical. They're a little bit more difficult. They might teach a technique. The Super Sunday mysteries are always super, super easy. They just go together and snap and they're something that's relaxing and fun. But the New Year's Eve ones are always for what I would call confident beginners or intermediate quilters that want to challenge themselves a little bit. So I figured, well, I will do a little paper pieced element of this quilt. And it was just horrible. I make them ahead of time so I can check the pattern. But I kept making mistakes. When I would finally get it right, it wouldn't fit. Oh, it was just the most awful thing in the whole world. I finally threw up my hands and got somebody else to finish it for me. And we took pictures of her process and her process was what we showed. But I think that was the quilt that I had the worst participation on. I think I maybe saw 10 pictures of the final quilts or even quilts along the way. Usually I will give some sort of a prize. When I had the shop, I could give a discount code and that was easy for me. But now that I don't have the shop anymore, I have to do random drawings of fat quarters, which I will physically mail to people, or I will send people a pattern, you know, of their choice. Mm -hmm. But for that particular quilt, we just got very little participation. Nobody complained. Nobody was mean enough to write me and say, what were you doing? But nobody participated either. So never do that again. Well, I'm just trying to. Picture the frustration that must have caused you to not be able to pull it off yourself and knowing that some of your followers were probably having the same frustration. Yeah. The three of us that were involved, we did our very best to explain it. And we even did a little video on it, but it fell on its face. Fortunately, people are forgiving. Quilters are forgiving. They still follow my <laughs> mystery, so we're still going. Great. Why do you think you make quilts rather than using your time on another craft or something else? What else would I do? <laughs> I mean, that's my identity. I'm a quilter. Yeah. I don't know what else I would do. I spend a lot of time with my grandkids. Does that count? Yeah. Well, I'm always delighted when they come over. I have a little sign on my back door that says, grandchildren, always welcome. Parents, not so much. 
I've seen that, and also parents by appointment. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think any of your grandkids are going to become quilters? Not so far. Not so far. They're all fascinated by the craft, by what I do, but they're not at all interested in the actual sitting down at the sewing machine part. But then, you know, my youngest granddaughter is two months, so she really hasn't had the opportunity yet. Yeah. Well, who do you make your quilts for? Mostly I make them to test my patterns. I don't like patterns going out into the world that aren't thoroughly vetted. And I'll still make a mistake. I'll misspell a word or I'll forget an instruction or I'll point a seam allowance in the wrong direction. So that kind of thing still happens. But mostly I make them to test patterns. And then I do tend to quilt by check. I send them out. And if they're good enough and somebody in my family wants them, they will get given away. But all my children have learned not to answer the phone when I have a quilt to give away. So (laughs) a lot of them end up in buckets in the attic. Ah. And it's kind of odd to make this many samples. And I really can't just sell them because I need them for pattern covers. And if I do a show, people will ask me to do a trunk show. And I have to call around the kids and find out who's got this quilt, who's got that one, so that I can have it for a trunk show. Wow. So it's all part of the process, I guess. Yeah. What are you working on right now? Oh, the mystery for New Year's Eve. Normally, I have them done way ahead of time. But this year, I just got behind the eight ball and did not get it ready. So I am sewing frantically, double-checking the pattern. It won't be quilted by New Year's Eve, I'm sure. You said that's just a whole day thing. One day, you give clues every hour. So what is usually the size of the quilt that they finish? I actually did a survey this year to see what size everybody wanted. And black quilts won this year. But in the past, I've done everything from a mini to a king. Honestly, I had a queen planned for this year, but the votes came in for lap size. So this one, I think, is 60 by something. I'd have to go back and look at the pattern to tell you for sure. Mm -hmm. I was just curious that that's a lot of sewing in one day. On the New Year's Eve patterns, I always give cutting instructions ahead of time because they do end up being a little bit complicated. But Super Sunday, usually they don't need cutting instructions ahead of time because they're easier. Sometimes I'll do it anyway, just because it's easier on the quilter. So they usually have all the pieces cut out? Yes, and they can get started at whatever hour I specify. I have started at 9 Eastern in the past, and I've also started at noon Eastern in the past. I'm trying to accommodate everybody on both coasts. You you really can't do everything. Right. Sometimes you just have to see the clues and not go ahead. Mm Mm-hmm. With having a quilting business, describe how you went from having it as a hobby to making it a business. 
It was very gradual. It came from the antique quilts and the restoration that I was doing. And I started attending classes and that sort of thing so that I could learn more about the textiles of the 18th and 19th century. I never did get a degree in women's studies. I defaulted to sociology, but it really is quite interesting to see how the fabrics affected the women of, say, 1800. Back in those days, everything, of course, was homegrown. You had flax, you had wool, and so on. Women were not educated beyond what they absolutely needed to know to keep the home fires burning. And of course, that changed pretty dramatically over the course of 100 years. And you can follow that progression in the textiles that became available. It is definitely a mindset change that you have to try to get to people when you start talking about antique quilts. And so as I studied how your lifestyle changed while you were making flax into linen, you were making wool into wool chalet, which became the sheets on your bed and the towels that you used. And then cotton was very precious in 1800, let's say. And of course, by 1900, it was dirt cheap. Silk was something that was imported, always imported, and it became the fabric of choice. And women began to evaluate themselves on how good their skills in sewing were their sewing, their embroidery skills, the fact that they had actual leisure time to do some of these arts and crafts. I mean, there was a big arts and crafts explosion around the turn of the century, 1900. So it was kind of a way of bragging. If you had the time to make a crazy quilt, for example, you were announcing to the world that you had servants. And of course, you had servants because you were wealthy, and you were wealthy because you had married well. Again, it's something that's hard to explain to people that can't put themselves back there. They can't think the way people thought back then. This is great information. Well, we talked a little bit about your businesses that you've had, and you came up with unique names. Can you tell me about the names and how you came up with them? Well, the quilt bus was kind of obvious. It was a bus that we sold quilts from. So that's just a conglomeration of two names. Mm -hmm. um, Phoebe is the muse of creativity. She's the goddess of creativity. So when I was looking into Phoebe, I discovered that there was a moon called Phoebe. So I gave my business the name Phoebe Moon. And as it turns out, years later, I discovered that there was an actual person whose name was Phoebe Moon. And she does scrapbooking and knitting. So we occasionally will run across each other. We'll get each other's emails and so on. Huh. And then Scrap Dash was the dash, of course, is dash across the country. And scraps is how I'm dashing to the finish line using up all these scraps. Oh, neat. I also have one other pro bono site, and that's Quilt Guilds. And I'll give it a little plug if you don't mind. Not at all. Um, it lists all the quilt guilds in the country, and it lists all the quilt shows in the country, but people have to submit them. I don't go out and look for them, so the information there is only as accurate as whatever somebody submitted. 
it's a very, very popular site. I can tell from my analytics how often it gets visited. And you can tell that shows are starting to come back. Last year and two years ago, the show pages just went nowhere. I had like three of them and they got maybe 10 visitors a month. Now I'm getting a huge amount of visitors checking out all the shows. So that makes me feel good for the future. Great. We're coming back. That is really good. And I know people are going to be so happy to get that information. Yep. And if you got a show or you got a guild, check its listing. Mm-hmm. And I met you as Phoebe Moon, so it took me a while to realize your name was Chris. Yeah, a lot of times I just answer to Phoebe Moon. You will write somebody a letter and sign it, Chris Dreesen, and they'll write you back, Dear Phoebe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I don't even argue anymore. It's yeah. fine. How long ago was it that you opened Phoebe Moon Quilts Design? When I was still doing the bus because I wanted to give the technique sheets a copyright. So some of them have the copyright quiltbus.com and some of them have the copyright Phoebe Moon. But, you know, it's all me. Yeah. Now, thinking back to when you started doing your workshops, how did it feel when that first person signed up? Well, I never really had to worry about that because the guilds would do it for me. I would get very excited and happy when we had a good no whining class. No whining was a little hard to teach because you had to get people to get out of their comfort zone. You take away their rulers, get them to think what happens if you put this next to that, get them to understand that they're going to make a lot of mistakes and they're going to come up with a lot of ugly blocks. But for every 12 ugly blocks we made, we made one or two that would make you go, oh, and then you would get two people together that both had ugly blocks. But when you put the blocks together, you would get the, oh, so it was it was just the most fun class, but it was hard. People like to say, you know, you cut three blocks, three and a half inches square, and then you sew them together and you press the seam open. It was a fun class. It was and is a lot of fun. I ended up splitting no whining into no whining, dimensional and stripper club. And sometimes I could do an entire retreat, like a four-day retreat, and never, never do the same technique twice because people would come up with new things. It was just it was just a wonderful class. Of course, I'm talking about pre-COVID. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned, and we've talked a little bit about being a quilt historian, but can you describe that a little bit more for me? From my restoration I learned to study how quilts were constructed, the events that were going on in a quilter's life or in the woman's life when she was constructing her quilt. The funniest quilt that I ever took apart was actually at a show. My husband and I were vending. We were selling antique quilts at a show, and I had bought a quilt that was lumpy. So you know if a quilt is lumpy, it's got something on the inside. And while I was talking to a customer, he decided that he was going to sit down and get out the seam ripper and take apart the quilt and see what's inside of it. And the first thing he pulls out is a slip. And I'm not really paying attention to him. He's pulling out 
other undergarments. And this is not what I expected to find on the inside of the quilt. Usually a lumpy quilt has another quilt on the inside. So he's pulling out a slip and a blouse with no buttons. And he pulled out a bra and he pulled out one pair of stockings. Finally, by this point, he's getting an audience because people are starting to notice what he's doing. And he's got all these women surrounding him. I'm still talking to the customer, kind of watching him out of the corner of my eye, wondering what in God's name is he doing? And people are laughing. So he put his hand in the quilt and he pulls out, I don't know, somebody's underwear. And everybody's laughing. And finally, somebody said to him, you know, John, you should really stop. And he says, I'm not going to stop now. There's a naked quilter in there somewhere. (laughs) So that is my funny quilt story. You just never know what's going to be in a lumpy quilt. Wow. (laughs) We talked about your workshops and lectures a little bit. Did you want to share what you cover in your different workshops? I will do whatever somebody wants. I get two types of people. Somebody who wants to learn about the antique quilts, I will do my feed sack lecture or I'll do the women in 19th century lecture. And it really depends on the group. I am hired probably 50% of the time by historical societies or museums or just senior citizen groups that want to hear about the lifestyles of, of women, either in the 19th century or the 20th century when I talk about feed sacks, or I might do a quilting group and they want patterns or they want concepts. If I can talk them into no whining, they usually have a good time, but no whining isn't for everybody. You really do have to think outside of the box for that class. So some guilds just don't have any use for it. So basically I'll do whatever, whatever I'm asked to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I saw that you were in several publications. I've written for several magazines, nothing recently. There's a certain lag time with magazines, and I just don't have the time. I make a pattern, and I want to test it, and I want to get it out to the world. And magazines want you to actually quilt the quilt and send them the quilt to be exhibited and so on. And I am working full-time almost for Connecting Threads and Northcott and Banyan Boutiques. And I just can't afford the time for a magazine. That's probably a terrible thing to say. No, Um, times have changed, I think. So business is going to change. Yeah. I am very, very pleased to be a Connecting Threads designer. That's a huge honor. And it was even bigger of an honor when Northcott asked me to be one of their designers. I tell my kids, guess what? This happened. And they go, "Uh uh-huh, that's nice. (laughs) Because only a quilter really understands. My patterns are being commercially distributed by Brewer Sewing and Supply, which is a huge honor. So I go and I tell my kids, guess what? Well, what's Brewer? Is that like Walmart? No. no. (laughs) So, you know, there's nobody really I can tell these things to. Those are huge honors, though. That's great. Well, next time I get an honor, I'll call you up. (laughs) (laughs) Then guess what? (laughs) 
I can say, yay. <laughs> That's neat. Where can people find your businesses? Well, Phoebe Moon, I'm in the process of redesigning that site, but it still exists. And of course, Scrap Dash is the blog site, and I do an awful lot of tutorials there. Your local quilt shop, now that I'm being distributed, your local quilt shop may have my patterns. And if not, you can always ask for them and they can buy them relatively easily. And of course, online. Great. And we will have all your links on your episode page. So people can always look there too. Okay. Is there anything else you would like to share? If you follow me on Instagram, I'm Chris Dreesen. If you follow me on Facebook, I misspelled Phoebe Moon Designs and I couldn't figure out how to get it back. So I'm Phoebe Moon Dizigzigs. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think if you just put in Phoebe Moon Designs, it it goes to that place. Yeah. This is so much fun. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled. Another feather in my cap. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Chris. I really, really do appreciate spending this time with you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>